In 1822, a man called Smith claimed he'd received a visitation from an angel. He said that this heavenly emissary uh, called Moroni directed into some gold plates hidden on a hill in Palmyra in New York State. They were, they were inscribed with this ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, which he was enabled alone to translate uh, because the angel had given him some uh, angelic spectacles, as he described. On translation, he said these plates revealed extraordinary facts about the early history um, of the American continent, not the least being that America was not discovered by Christopher Columbus, but by a Jewish prophet called Leahy 600 years before Christ, and that Christ himself then appeared after his resurrection to the descendants of that ancient Jewish family in the New World. Do you believe that? There's no evidence apart from the testimony of that one man. And yet there are 300 million, sorry, 3 million adherents of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And they believe every single word that I've just told you. One commentator put it this way, uh, the greatest threat to the Christian church is not the rise of scientific um, uh, scepticism, but just the simple growth of public gullibility. See, people will believe anything. Recently have been concerns, haven't there, about the threat of atheism in this country with various uh, commentators uh, putting books out and so on. But I think there's no need to be concerned. Primarily because atheism propagates a kind of fatalistic misery guts outlook on life. And people just don't want that. And it's proving very little threat. But triumphalistic pseudo-Christianity with all its gloss and the kind of huge empty promises. Well that has been, that is and will always be a huge threat. It certainly was the problem back in uh, the first century Corinth. And that is what Paul, the situation that Paul is writing to here. We've been learning about these detractors, these teachers. They've gone into the church in Corinth. They call themselves apostles. We've seen already in chapter 10 that they boasted in themselves. They valued uh, show more than substance. Wealth more over wisdom. And Paul's warned the church about them previously. But as the letter nears its end, to this church that he's established and loves so dearly, well, Paul feels he not only has to defend himself, but now he comes out on the offensive. He's not only got to defend his authority uh, as the apostle of Jesus Christ, he comes out on the offensive against those, these teachers within that church. He finished at the end of chapter 10. If you want to glance back, please do. Pointing, to the um, pointing the church to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. In verse 17 there saying, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now Paul despised all this boasting. These teachers in Corinth, they would love it. They did it all the time. But Paul had made it clear, I, I, he doesn't want to do that. And alongside his reticence to boast at all, he thou has to justify why that is so necessary. And we see that at the beginning of our passage today. He's defending why he's had to do this. 
Look at verse 1. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness, boasting. Yes, please put up with me. Originally, it's basically, bear with me. I'm not going to go to the, the obvious Miranda one here. Bear with, bear with, you know, and so on. Uh, but, you know, that's what he's asking. He appears embarrassed and he's even forced to kind of spell out his credentials as an apostle. And he doesn't done this to promote himself. He's not boasting in himself. He's boasting in the Lord and the Lord's work in and through him as an apostle. It's a boasting motivated by his concern for the church. The concern that he now spells out. Look at our first point. Uh, and that's, we see Paul's concern here. For the gullible Corinthians. Verse 2. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul's got this wonderful kind of paternal love and, and jealousy for the Corinthians. He says, I promise you to one husband, to Christ. And Paul is picturing himself there as that protective father who's presenting his daughter uh, in, in that culture, when someone was engaged or betrothed to be married, they were actually legally their husbands-to-be. They were kind of le- the contract was done at betrothal, at engagement. Uh, she socially, kind of, she remained distinct for a year, sometimes two, but often just a year, removed from her husband-to-be, but they were legally, in a sense, together. And that was brought together at the consummation at their, on their wedding day. But the betrothal contract was legally binding and it acted as a a kind of a guarantee of what was to come. And Paul is saying to this church in Corinth, that is, they were like a betrothed daughter to him. His job was now to present them pure to Christ at the final resurrection. And so he's jealously protective of them. And that's a good thing. It's a right thing. Likewise, we must lovingly protect and provide for our children, whether that's in a a spiritual family or our family family, if you know what I mean. Here, though, Paul's concern is that the church won't be led astray. He wants to protect them and present them to Christ on that final day. And you see how the image, the link from verse 2 to 3, he's there first use that image of the bride in verse 2 and it points him now back to the first bride and their deception in verse 3 verse 3 i'm afraid that just as eve was deceived by the snake's cunning your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to christ if you haven't i mention it lots but if you haven't read it it is an absolute gem c.s lewis books screw tape letters it's well worth a read He says this, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You see, even if you go back to Eve's deception in the Garden of Eden, uh, it wasn't obvious. It wasn't aggressive. No, it was subtle. It was enticing. Satan promised her things that he could never deliver on. And she was deceived to think that she could have more and that she deserved more. And Satan's cunning is that he often just gradually picks away at our thinking and makes us dissatisfied with what we have. The same thing happened to 
Eve that was happening in Corinth. And as a result, the church was being gradually and gently, with soft movements, being led away from Christ. The church were gullible and they were believing these teachers who were saying that there was some more. They could experience more as Christians. Uh, They taught that the life of the Christian was this triumphal experience. To them, you see, what they were saying in this church in Corinth, they were saying, Paul, Paul, he's the spoil sport. It's his teaching which is restricting them, holding the church back. He's the killjoy. And Paul is warning the church here, don't be fooled by words. Don't be fooled. Throughout time, from the beginning right up to today, people are so often fooled by words. I'm not going to get political here, but just look at the world of politics. Whether it's across the pond or here. Sadly, Christians seem especially prone. Such deception is usually covered by a thin veneer of God or Bible talk, alongside some flattery of, and talk about self-improvement. We all love to be told that we're winners, that we're great, that we're worth it. Shampoo advert, but you know, um, that we deserve more. Such teaching begins to focus less on our lives being shaped by the cross And much more by the world and the comforts and the experiences that we're deceived to think that we're entitled to. The church were putting up with these teachers and were gullible prey for their teaching. And look how far, look how far things have gone. Verse 4, it's it's, it's quite shocking. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, a, a different gospel from the one you accepted... You put up with it easily enough. Jesus himself had preached that to follow him meant taking up their cross. And these teachers left no room for kind of weakness and suffering in what they taught. That is, they preached just another Jesus. Likewise, the the spirit the church had received when they came to faith, the spirit that empowered uh, Paul's ministry, the spirit who produces virtues of love, of gentleness, of kindness, of peace and of patience. This was being replaced by these teachers and their teaching. They had an overbearing spirit that enslaves and exploits. We'll see that next week. Chapter 11, verse 20, if you want to note it down. They teach a different gospel where the emphasis is is skill in speaking, as we've seen, displays of authority, visions and revelations. We'll see that in chapter 12, verse 1. And apostolic signs, again, later on in chapter 12. See, their gospel, it stressed power and it was all for their glory. Quite the opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can nearly hear, can't you, Paul sigh in verse 4. You put up with it easily enough. Don't be fooled by words. This echoes something of what Jesus warned of in Matthew 7 about wolves in sheep's clothing. I do hope you understand that those who devour the church, they look the part. 
They come in with their Bibles held open. They're impressive to behold as people. They speak eloquently. But we must not be gullible and fooled by flattering words and a modified Jesus. Yes, there are many blessings of being a Christian right now, today. We've looked at some of those, of the forgiveness of sin, the, the deposit of the Spirit in our hearts, uh, you know, the eternal hope of what we have waiting for us in, uh, in heaven. But the cost is not insignificant. We are saved by the cross of Christ and we live our lives day by day, shaped by that same cross. And so don't be fooled, don't be gullible. And so what should we, should we be looking for, particularly in teachers and leaders, which is the context here? Look at verse 5 and 6. Paul says, I, I do not think I am the least inferior to these super apostles, as he kind of very sarcastically kind of says. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge, he says. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. See, Paul is defending himself as the authentic, empowered, authorised apostle of Jesus. But please don't miss that sarcasm in verse 5. These leaders in the church in Corinth, they may call themselves uh, apostles, but in undermining and in criticising Paul, as they have been, that what they're doing is they're, they're positioning themselves above him, looking down their noses <laughs> at him, undermining him. And hence the sarcastic mockery, calling them super apostles. Yes, Paul does concede in verse 6, doesn't he, that he may not have the training in public speaking that they have, but he concedes nothing, absolutely nothing to them that defines being a true apostle of Christ. Because he says, I do have knowledge. As a result, his preaching had all the power it needed because he proclaimed the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that same knowledge has transformed every single one of our lives here today if we are Christians. Paul may have lacked in human terms because of his style and tone. Added to that, uh, the fact that he wouldn't charge a fee for speaking was a big issue, wasn't it? It seems. It was giving the impression that he didn't have much to say. That was the culture of the time, that he lacked skill in speaking. In those days, these two factors kind of determined your fee. And the same is true today. If you're a former prime minister, for example, in this country, you command a very big fee because you've got a lot to say, apparently. David Cameron, do you know how much your pockets per speech at the moment? £120,000. Tony Blair... He's got a lot more to say, apparently. £195,000 per speech. See, Paul has uh, raised this subject, but, but not to concede, but rather to contend against these teachers who were deceiving the gullible Corinthians. Paul's powerful, but only because he trusted in and proclaimed a divine power. And it was working in and through him. So we've seen Paul's concern for the gullible Christians. The warning, do not be fooled by words. Secondly, Paul's defence of his unselfish ministry. And here we come to verse 7. Paul's defence of his unselfish ministry. Verse 7. What is a sin 
for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Paul had been very clear he was going to refuse money from the wealthy church in Corinth. And so he speaks in exaggerated terms, in a sense to shame the Corinthian teachers. Look at verse 8. I robbed. I robbed other churches. That's translated elsewhere, pillaged. Okay? And the implication is other poorer churches. So I didn't have to charge you. Oh, the Corinthians would have felt this so acutely. Uh, There was a a cultural shame in not providing payment for a speaker. They would have wanted to, just to keep up appearances. The teachers of Corinth, though, they would have felt the full force of what Paul is saying here. Because Paul's rejection of any money in Corinth was for a specific purpose. And it is he was calling into question the fees that these teachers were asking for. And he was calling into question their integrity. But most of all, I guess, it pointed everyone to, if you like, the the example of Christ who was willing to suffer for the gospel for the glory of others. See, what Paul is doing in Corinth, he wasn't doing elsewhere. He was specifically keeping himself from being a burden in any way possible. Why? Because he was going to make sure that these teachers were going to be exposed for the charlatans that they were. They were the burden to the church, not Paul. They were the ones who were demanding and Paul was just simply unselfishly serving. And so Paul is boasting of his selfless ministry. And and in so doing, he's exposing their selfishness, their demands. And to seal this in the minds of the Corinthian church, Paul now makes two oaths. Look at verse 10 and 11. Firstly, verse 10, as surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. See, verse 10, he's he's trusting there in the irrefutable evidence that he isn't taking a fee. They would have known it. He knew it. The teachers knew it. And that's his boast. He invokes the name of Christ as an oath. To say that he isn't just, you know, kind of frivolously chucking this out in conversation. Likewise, in verse 11, he anticipates them um, not taking money, that him not taking money will be seen as kind of some kind of, spite towards the church and so he says why because i do not love you god knows i do again an oath they he calls god as his witness to to say that his actions are in love for these gullible corinthians and paul won't let this go this isn't a temporary thing he'll not give up on these teachers until they've been fully exposed for the frauds they are hence verse 12 And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Paul's warning to the Corinthians is simple. And I think we would be wise to listen in. Do not be fooled by money. It was so important to Paul, not only that he was funded 
But the way he was funded was so important. And he was so, so careful. Why? Because money can so easily corrupt. It can corrupt preachers, it can corrupt churches, whole churches. It's why we're so careful here to give, keep giving anonymous, for example, and play, put in place a whole bunch of numerous stages of accountability. And just because, and God has been very kind recently, and we praise God for that, but just because we have relatively large amounts going into our account, don't be deceived that that is a barometer of our spiritual health. Don't be fooled. Only, only individuals here will know whether they're Macedonian or Corinthian. That is, the Macedonians, if you look back in chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, they're the ones who gave sacrificially in response to the gospel. The Corinthians gave in response to the performance and show. See, churches can be huge business. There are churches in London with budgets of many millions of pounds. There's nothing wrong with that if money is given in loving response to the gospel of Christ and used wisely to support gospel ministry and other ministries. There's nothing wrong with church workers receiving wages. Uh, Paul says uh, elsewhere that a worker deserves the wages. What Paul is contending against here is the view that money was an indicator of spiritual health or the measure, particularly the measure of a leader. Don't be fooled by money. Paul ends this section of his argument, and many argue, I think, that these are the strongest words he writes in any of the letters that we have. Verse 13 to 15, Paul's, we see, now attack on the super apostles. Let me read these words again. For such people are false apostles. They're deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So link back to Isaiah there. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what they deserve, what their actions deserve. <coughs> Look how he calls out these leaders. They're false apostles, false Teachers, not, not leaders who have, you know, just a couple of wrong things that you kind of think, oh, they're not quite there with that. They're false teachers. That is worked out in the next adjective. So they're deceitful. That is, they aren't teaching from ignorance. They've not slipped up on a few things. They're intentionally deceitful. Followed on with that, they're masquerading as apostles of Christ. That is, there's there's some hiddenness. They're hiding their true identity. Why? To gain power, to manipulate the church. Now, we don't know what looking apostolic is, you know, exactly. It could be that they, they, they wore particular robes in order to point back to some, perhaps like some of the priesthood in the Old Testament. We're not totally sure. But you'd only have to look at some of the televangelists, for example, that I was pointing to you last week, you know, in their Ferraris to get a contemporary picture. But Paul's point is simple. They're false teachers. They're deceitful. They're masquerading themselves to deceive. And as a result, they are just like Satan. Who in John's Gospels described as the father of lies. 
He's the arch deceiver. And let's be clear about this. These kind of teachers look the part. You know, they don't appear on your TV screens or, you know, on a, on a podcast or anywhere with cloven hooves and kind of a red cape and a pitchfork or anything like that. These kind of leaders might wear a dog collar. They very often will have a big Bible in front of them. They may have churches of tens of thousands. They may have huge mansions and private jets. But Paul says they're in league with Satan. Last application from this. Don't be fooled by sentimental tolerance. What do I mean by that? Don't be fooled by appearances and the sentimentality of the age. We dare not call out anyone. We dare not say anyone is a false teacher for fear of bearing, uh, appearing. And it's the worst thing of our culture. Don't be intolerant. I want to give you an example. It may shock you that's come to my attention recently. It's regarding music, but I'm sure you might have heard of it. Over the last five years, Bethel Church in Reading, uh, California, have been writing and producing some of the biggest songs that you might know and you might play. Their YouTube videos of their songs are watched by tens of millions of times and they're, you know, they're the highest Christian right at the top there of all the Spotify playlists and everything else. You watch their videos, they look like films that you'd watch at the cinema. And if I'm honest, as a musician, their, their music production values are, are the best. Their musicianship is exemplary. Their leader, Bill Johnson, though, is every bit the Corinthian leader. Johnson encourages Christians, and I quote, to stop focusing our need to protect ourselves from deception, and instead our hunger for, hit, for Jesus must be seen in our lustful pursuit of spiritual gifts. Emphasis on gifts, not obedience. He criticises the church for, a quote, living according to an intellectual approach to the scriptures, void of the Holy Spirit's influence, which then he, I quote, a false sense of leads to a false sense of security. Instead, he says this, quote, to follow him, Jesus, we must be willing to follow, uh, follow off the map, to go beyond what we know. Now, if you're at that point and you're going, that sounds right. It's kind of just getting people pushing out a little bit there. Look how that approach, just nuancing scripture a little bit. Look at where it goes with this church. As a result, they've rewritten the New Testament. They call it the Passion Translation. It's 50% longer than the New Testament that we have. They, not have, they don't have one single Greek scholar working on it who understands the original language and they play fast and loose with it. They limit close to deny the divinity of Jesus. Historically, we call that the kenotic heresy. It's very dangerous indeed. Benny Johnson, Bill's wife, and other Bethel leaders practice what is called grave sucking or grave soaking, where they lay atop the graves of famous dead Christians to suck the anointing that they believe is contained in their bones. I could go on. I mean, the list of examples that have been exposed recently are just shocking. This is the church, by the way, that had been in the press quite a lot because they claimed that gold was falling from their roof and their ceilings as they sang. And various leaders on the stage had fillings that 
turn from whatever fillings are to gold and various other things and gold teeth popping out. Actually, what happened, because one of their senior staff exposed them, was that they were putting glitter that adult artists paint on their bodies and they positioned it very carefully in air conditioning units. Now, I'm thankful that these people have been exposed. Many Christians around the world have stopped singing their songs and listening and watching their songs on YouTube, but we must be careful. Let's not be fooled by sentimental tolerance. Oh, we, don't want to, we don't want to say too much. Now, you would have thought their church would be empty now. No, it's growing. You would have thought that churches in the United Kingdom would have stopped singing their songs. For example, Phil Wickham, who's associated with them and wrote with them, a song called Living Hope. It was sung at our own revive last year. It's sung at Word Alive, one of the biggest conservative evangelical conferences in this country. And in many churches that you know, love and respect. Now some sing and therefore fund this church and this false teaching unknowingly. But many continue funding this false teaching, sentimentally tolerating them. But Paul is clear. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Let's see them for who they are. Don't be fooled. Don't tolerate or support anything with people like them. I'm going to pray as we close.